who judges impartially each one according. No, uh, <laughs> hey, we're going to stop right here. That's the text for this morning. That's the text for this morning. <laughs> let, let that be an encouragement to you. I was failing with the Bible open, right? <laughs> so, so we can do this, y'all. We can hide God's word uh, in our hearts. And let's do that. We're going to be focusing verses 17 to 19 this morning. I want to ask you a question. As we turn there, would you say that you know how to live as God desires? Would you say that you know how to live as God desires? Or to maybe bring it down on a more earthly level, would you just say, oh, just taking God out the equation for a moment, only a moment, because we're a Christian church and God's always been there, but only for a moment. Would, would you say you're good at life? Who taught you how to live? I realize these are, these are actually profound questions. And they, and they tap really into the root of many of our anxieties, many of our uncertainties. Um, many of our frustrations, how often are we just sort of faced with things in life where it's like, ah, I may never say it out loud, but we're just like, I don't know how to do this. That baby comes into your hands, that, that uh, what did you call it? It's a bun in the oven. That's one, a bun. You said a bundle. So we're expecting twins or triplets or something, all right? But that baby comes and lands in mom and dad's arms. You didn't have a manual. Right? It's, it's a profound act of grace that we sort of know how to do that thing. You get that new job and you promise the employer, yes, I can do this. You know, I've got this degree that says I can do this. And I've got this kind of experience. And uh, you go into the workplace on the first day and you're looking for somebody to tell you how to do it. Right? The thing about life is we, we, don't, we don't sort of have the answers before we begin the journey. We have to learn how to live. That's true just in the natural life, and that's true in the spiritual life. And when we come to this section in 1 Peter, that's what Peter is actually dealing with. In verses 1 to 12, He's really just been rejoicing. You see how he breaks out in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from that point on, he's just celebrating the fact that we are saved. He's amazed at it over and over again. He's referring to this salvation that we are attaining or the preciousness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes even though it's uh, tested by fire. He's amazed that Jesus is coming over and over again. He talks about when we see him, when he is revealed, when he returns. He's just over and over ringing this bell. It's marvelous that we are saved. He's just shaken by it. He's just gripped by it. He's just enthralled with the reality that God has entered time and space in the form of his son in order to die for us that we might live for him. And yet the question comes flooding in around verse 13. How are we to live? How do we do this thing called the Christian life? How do we live in a way that pleases God. 
And, and really, that's the theme of this text. And I want to sort of ask two questions and answer two questions with God's help from verses 17 to 19. Two basic questions. Number one, how should we live as exiles? And number two, what help do we have to live this way? What help do we have to live this way? Look with me in verses 17 and 19. Apostle Peter writes there, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How should we live as exiles? Well, the main command there is in verse 17. You see it where it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verses 1 and 2, Peter addressed these people as elect exiles. They are elect, they are chosen and loved, but they're also exiles. They are displaced and homeless in this world. That's the Christian identity. We are chosen but homeless. We are loved but displaced. And these Christians are scattered all throughout Asia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and other places that sound strange to us now, but they are scattered into the outer reaches of that part of the world. And Peter writes to them, as we said, to keep reminding them that they are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, Peter begins teaching them how saved people ought to live as saved people. First, in verse 13, he wants them to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to live the life that God has purposed for us, we have to be people of hope. And then secondly, he says there, uh, he wants them to be holy, verses 15 and 16, just as God is holy. So we're people not only of hope, but of holiness. All of our conduct should be holy. And now he comes to a third thing here in verse 17, which we just read. He says there, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That word conduct, of course, refers to behavior but not just isolated behavior, individual acts or individual thoughts. It it refers really to our whole lifestyle. And he says here, conduct yourselves. He's he's saying, look, live all across the board. Live in such a way uh, as pleases God. Our conduct includes everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. And conduct includes our public lives, but also our private lives, because it all matters. For those who claim to know the Lord as Savior, our conduct reflects on God. That's how he says it there. If you call on him as father, if you claim that he's your father, conduct yourselves. There's a connection between that claim of faith and that conduct of life. We understand this concept, don't we? We have many examples in the natural realm. So, for example, uh, professional athletes will sign contracts that often have moral clauses in them, right? These are clauses that are defining what's proper or improper, not just on the football field, but in their whole life because how they live reflects on their franchise and reflects on the league. One only wishes they would enforce those clauses more often. Not just professional athletes, but elected officials 
you know, have uh, sort of ethical things that they are to abide by, even have committees on, on ethics, and we wish they too would abide by the ethics because their conduct reflects on the government and the people that they lead. Well, how about pastors? First Timothy chapter 3, uh, Titus chapter 1, a whole set of qualifications for pastors, uh, codes of character and conduct. Why? Because the pastor's life reflects on the shepherd he preaches and on the people he leads. Well, same is true for Christians in general. According to this text, our conduct should be appropriate for our profession of faith. Now, specifically, Peter wants their entire lifestyle to be defined by fear. By fear. Now, the word fear here does not merely mean being afraid, cowering before God. Peter is not saying Christians should live like God is going to strike them down with a lightning bolt at any moment. It's not what he means. Peter uses the word fear in the much older sense of deep respect. He has in mind a, a holy reverence. This holy respect or this holy reverence comes not from, again, cowering, but it comes from awe. And it comes from love. It comes from looking at someone who blows you away and delighting in them. When I first saw my wife, I knew I would marry her. It's like, man, look at that woman. I was in awe. I was in love, too. She didn't know it yet, but she was in love, too. I had to convince her. She didn't know it. <laughs> she didn't know it. A little perseverance, you know what I mean? A little Barry White. And all of a sudden, she was in awe. Struck with reverence. <laughs> so did, I, I'm, on, I'm on Dayquil, y'all. I'm sorry. In a similar way, so it is with God. So Psalm 33, verse 8, the psalmist says there, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is appropriate given who God is, how majestic and, and splendid and beautiful and glorious and infinite in power and infinite in love. I mean, if we could glimpse God, the natural response is awe of God reverence, fear. And the Bible calls us to a lifestyle of this, a lifestyle of awe, love, deep respect, holy reverence for God. We should look to God the way little boys or little girls look to their fathers when their fathers are still their heroes. When they're on the playground saying, my daddy can beat up your daddy. When they just want to imitate everything daddy does, kind of walk like him and talk like him. That's the kind of reverence. It's a, a small picture of the kind of reverence we should have for God. And we should do this, notice, with our entire lives. Peter says, throughout the time of your exile. So respect for God, we're talking about we're an exiled people. This kind of reverence for God is not a part-time job. Respect for God is not to be limited to the times and circumstances that feel convenient or feel good. Even in exile, when we feel displaced 
and homeless in the world, we who call upon God as Father, we Christians, must live in the fear of the Lord. We want the fear of the Lord to be the deepest guiding principle of our lives. Really, the fear of the Lord is another way of describing the good life, the abundant life, the life that really is life that Jesus brings to his followers. Let, let me list a few ways in which we see this, where this fear of God is associated with the good life. The fear of the Lord is the way to wisdom. Many of us know this from Proverbs chapter 1, several places in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If we would be wise, according to God's perspective, we must begin by fearing Him, respecting Him, His Word. The fear of the Lord is the way to purity. Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is what keeps us from evil. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear of the Lord is the way to God's compassion. How many of us need compassion? Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It is the way to wealth and respect. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. It is the way to a long life. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And again, Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Do you realize that the fear of the Lord is true beauty? Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Fear of the Lord is the entire purpose of life. The writer of Ecclesiastes, after he has tried literally everything, pleasure and wisdom and, and everything, he writes this, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the whole duty of man, the central organizing principle of those who believe in their God. To fear him, to respect him, to honor him, to reverence him, to love him from all of him. Maybe the simplest way to apply this is to ask the question, do you fear the Lord? Do you respect God this morning? I pray that you would. If you're interested to think more about this, I highly commend to you Jerry Bridges' book, The Joy of Fearing God. It's one of the best books I've read on the subject. Jerry Bridges is um, almost anything he writes, just buy. It's going to be good for your soul. He just simply deals with the Bible and categorizes the teaching of the Bible in very plain and helpful ways. 
Uh, his book, The Joy of Fearing God, has been formative for me. Uh, I highly commend it to you. So this is a new idea to you. And you hear the question, do, do I fear God? And you, you wonder if you fear him like you ought uh, between the Bible and that book might be a good place to start. But this is what God wants for all of us. And this is what Peter says is our um, sort of secret to life, how we should live back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Well, there becomes a question then, a second question. Maybe this is a new concept to us, or maybe we're feeling like, no, I knew this, but I've kind of forgotten this. I don't know that I live with quite the same trembling awe and love before God as maybe I used to. And so the second question becomes something like this. Well, what, what help do we have in this text to live this way? Are there any aids to us to help us live in the fear of the Lord? I want to suggest to you that there are three in this text uh, that um, can help us, right? How do we learn to live this way? What does the Bible teach us? Three things to remember to help us live an exile's life of fearing God. Number one, we need to remember we have God for our Father. We have God for our Father. We maintain the fear of the Lord by maintaining the clear sense of the, of the fatherhood of God. We are not orphans. We are not spiritually abandoned. We are not alone. See what Peter says here. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Let's just pull this apart in, in four sort of sub points so I can delight Peter. I told you I had two questions. I got 18 sub points. See, I know how much he likes that. First sub point is simply this, that God is a father. It's what he reveals himself to be. One of the wonderful truths of the Bible is that God is our father if we trust in Christ. Now, the most basic definition of a father is a male who causes a pregnancy and a birth. In that way, a father is defined in relationship to his children. Verse 3, you remember, says this, that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's when he became our father. When he caused a new birth in us, a spiritual rebirth in us through faith in the resurrected Lord. And as a consequence now, verse 14, we are to be obedient children to him. There's no better news in all the universe than this. The one true and living God makes himself to be our father and takes us to be his children. Now, I realize if you, like me, in some ways, that can be hard to appreciate. For those who have not had dads there or lost dads early. But as we shall see, God is not a father like our earthly fathers. God is better than even the best of our earthly fathers. So hold heart, keep heart. But the first thing we want to see is just that that's who he is in his person. He is a father. But now notice, secondly, he's a father who can be called on. He's a father who can be called on. We all know there's more to being a father than just causing someone to be born. Fathers are more than sperm donors. True fathers are there for their children. They are available 
to their children. They care for their children. They protect their children. They provide for their children. They guide their children into what is right. And I think all of those things, availability, care, provision, protection, guidance, are included in that phrase, assuming that phrase, if you call on him. For why else would we call on him? When we call on God, what are we normally doing? Aren't we like children saying something like, protect us, guide us, give us wisdom, help us, be with us? Aren't we in some way calling on him with the anticipation that he will be a father who responds the way a perfect father ought? This is one of the privileges of being God's children. We get to call on our father with full confidence of a loving answer. He cares for us as his children. We can call on him any time. He never slumbers nor sleeps. And we can depend upon him to give us what is best for us. And like all children, we've got to learn the distinction between what we want for us and what is best for us. But he will always give us what is best for us. He is never unavailable. He's never too busy. He's never uninterested or unsympathetic. We are never an inconvenience to him. We can call on him anytime in any place, and he will show up as our father. He's our good, good father. See a third thing in this text. I love this. God the Father, father judges impartially. You know what that means? He has no favorites. He's not playing favorites with his kids, right? He's not comparing us to each other and showing more love to one than the other. He treats us impartially. He's not like Joseph's parents making coats of many colors and giving it to one child and propping that child up and the other child getting jealous. He's not like that at all. You will never hear God the Father say to you, why can't you be more like your brothers or sisters? going to hear that from God. Never. He is not partial. He does not play favorites. His love is not given out like limited slices of a pie. Some getting big pieces, the favorite children, and others getting smaller slivers. His love is infinite. And he gives it to each of us without discrimination, without partiality, without favoritism. Don't you know that all of us are God's favorite children? We are. Fourth thing about God our Father, He keeps us accountable. Like a good dad, He keeps us accountable. He disciplines us. You see it there? He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, in this sense, God the Father does not treat us all the same. His care for us is personalized. Your deeds are different from my deeds. Your needs are different from my needs and vice versa. And we have a father in heaven who addresses each of us as individuals with our unique differences according to our deeds. This means the father is there for us in ways specific to us. His care and correction are not general and abstract. There's no hand-me-down accountability. I'm the only one who wore hand-me-down. Okay, some of y'all know, right? 
clothes that your big brother or your big sister owned or some cousins own and you get it and you wear it and you're supposed to take care of it a little bit too because somebody else got to get them. You know, it's just kind of one size fits all, right? You'll grow into it. You got cuffs this high in your pants, you know what I mean? God, some of y'all know. Some of y'all know. <laughs> in his care for us, God is not like that. It's not hand-me-down care. It's not hand-me-down accountability. It's not hand-me-down correction. His guidance and accountability are tailor-made for our lives. They're curated to our specific deeds and needs. And that's who we need to show up. God who knows us particularly, who sees us. In the 1960s, around 1967, 1968, public service announcement began airing at a television station and radio stations in New York. According to the organizers of this PSA campaign, it started out of a concern for teenage children getting into trouble as a result of parents not watching their children. That was the assumption. And the simple PSA began this way. Maybe some of you remember have heard it. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? That was the original shady PSA right there, right? It was kind of an implicit, maybe even to some degree, explicit criticism of parents and a warning, an implicit warning, a veiled warning that your kids might be doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And you, if that's the case, if you don't know it, you're not doing something you should be doing, watching your kids. Now, beloved, no one has ever had to run a PSA like that for God. <laughs> 10 p.m., 10 a.m., doesn't matter. God knows exactly where we are, exactly what we're doing. He's right there with us as we're doing it. And he knows exactly what we need according to each of our deeds. That's what he's like as a father. He's available. He's impartial. He's particular in his care for us. He is the perfect father. And with him, we don't have to compare ourselves to the other kids in the family. We don't have to lobby for something we perceive to be equal treatment in his family. He loves us, each of us, infinitely, and he expresses that love, each of us, intricately, according to who we are. That's what makes him the perfect father. For every imperfect child. This is our God. Now, there's some applications in this for us, I think. So if we're here and we're kids, and we all are, <laughs> we didn't get here like Melchizedek. If we're here and we're kids, here's something, there's freedom in this. We can stop comparing ourselves to our siblings and judging ourselves or our parents based on our siblings. Yes, your mom and your dad treat you differently. They do. I love all my kids, but they're different kids, right? If I look at Afia with a raised eyebrow, she's our rules-based child. She just sort of snaps to attention. If I raise that same eyebrow at Eden, she starts crying. If I raise an eyebrow at Titus, she's like, bro. <laughs> it's just, they're different. They need different things, right? Now, it's all love, but they need different things. And sometimes we get caught up any teenagers in here or kids who are maybe 8, 10, 12, we get caught up in measuring what's going on with us and our parents based on what so-and-so got. 
so-and-so didn't do this and, and they got this or so-and-so did do this and, and they got that and you treat them better than you treat me or you love them more than you love me. No, your parents, chances are, reflecting the image of God, love you the way you need to be loved. And what you are perceiving to be unfairness is actually the gift of a unique expression of love based on who you are. Receive it that way. Receive it that way. So, so whether you are 12 or 22 or 32 or 42, if you are still blessed to have your parents and your parents are treating you a particular way, you need to ask yourself, is it, is it particular to who I am? And if so, that means they have observed you, they have seen you. And they are loving you in the way that you need to be loved. That is a tremendous gift. Don't, don't despise that. And my friend, if we're Christians here, again, we can stop expecting God the Father to treat us like everybody else. You are not everybody else. You are you and there's not another one in the universe. I'm me and there's not another one, praise God, in the universe. Why, why would we wish to be treated like everybody else when we are these unique creations of God? Unique lives, unique deeds, unique needs. No, 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 no. We, we want the father that we actually have, not the one that we're imagining that we've made up. We want the father um, who knows our uniqueness, who personally and individually and specifically responds to us based on that uniqueness. I fear we have a better father in God than most of us have even dared to imagine. And I fear we're tempted sometimes to think hard thoughts toward God because we in some way think he's a lot like earthly fathers or we think he doesn't know us as well as we feel like we ought to be known or we think he's not kind to us because he denies us something. No, beloved. We have a far better God than we have ever began to imagine. A far better Father who does what is exactly right all the time according to our needs. This is your Father who loves you specifically and intentionally and without fail. Call on him as Father. Be his child. Live in his love. Which brings us to another thing here that we need to remember. We need to remember not only that we have God as our Father, we need to remember that we are ransomed. We are ransomed. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, Peter is getting in some folks' business right now. To be ransomed is to be purchased back from someone who holds you captive. A ransom is the price that's paid for your freedom. We've all seen the TV shows or movies where a kidnapper calls the parents, demands a ransom. It's a critical period of time. You've got 24 hours to get me $20 million in nickels and dimes, right? And the police, the FBI show up and they're like, don't pay the ransom. We've got 72 hours. We'll get the kid. They sometimes do, they sometimes don't. This text says we were the ones kidnapped. We were the ones taken hostage. We needed to be ransomed. And specifically, notice from what? From the 
futile ways inherited from our forefathers. This is where it begins to mess in business right here. See, we all have cherished traditions, cultures, and religious ideals we get from our parents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. And those ideals, if they're not biblical gospel ideals, can enslave and kidnap us. Unless they're gospel ideas, those inherited customs are futile. That means they are weak and powerless. They have no power to save us from, God, from sin and from God's wrath. They are, they are empty. And yet sometimes we serve them. We serve our traditions. And we get bound by those traditions. And where we should have had freedom in the gospel, we are enslaved to those things that we have inherited from those who have gone before us. This is why we want to be really careful that we don't too deeply define our identities by our ethnicity and our cultures. We all are coming from backgrounds where there is both blessedness and brokenness. That every culture and every people are reflecting to some degree the, the grace of God and having been made in the image of God. But in a fallen world, every people and every culture are also reflecting to some degree enslavement to those things. And Peter is meddling right here. Now, he was a religious Jew himself. He's saying this about Judaism. Because Jesus has said to the religious leaders, you'll recall in the Gospels, that your traditions have made the word of God of no effect. Right? Your futile traditions have emptied God's word of its power. That's another way of saying what Peter says here. The futile traditions of your forefathers. But he's also writing to a church scattered around Asia, right? And so he's writing to people outside of Israel. So he's saying this about Gentiles as well. Your culture, your religious background, your family heritage and tradition, praise God, don't be enslaved by it. It's futile for saving. You understand nothing else. There are two things I want you to understand this morning. Here's the first one. Religion does not ransom us. Culture does not ransom us. Heritage does not ransom us. Only God in the gospel pays the ransom that saves from sin and saves from futile tradition and brings us to eternal life. You, Christian, were bought back from futile tradition to serve the living God. The ransom phone was called was made, that phone call was made to your heavenly father. And here's the good news. He answered it at the cross. He paid the ransom. He paid the price. And a God who would pay the price for our ransom deserves our reverence. Pastor God, remember that you are ransomed. And number three, lastly, remember what our ransom cost. That's what we see in verse 19. Peter makes it really clear. He says, now you were ransomed, not with perishable things, in verse 18, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If someone pays a lot to get you out of trouble, then you show them respect and love, don't you? When God paid our ransom, he paid a cost that could not be calculated. Notice it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's interesting, each time Peter mentions gold, he also mentions that it's perishable. You see, he did that back in verse 7 when he said, Our faith is more precious than gold, 
uh, though it is tested, gold that perishes. Here again, he mentions it, and he likes it. It's like he really wants us to know that money is nothing compared to eternal life. Money can't buy you eternal life, and money can't be compared to eternal life. Now, the Hebrew writers here, if we were in the Psalms, would insert the word selah, which means think about it. And somebody in here this morning needs to think about that. That all the silver and gold in the world cannot be compared salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why you, how you know you need to think about that. You simply need to ask yourself, which am I chasing? Am I chasing Christ or am I chasing the silver and gold in this world? If you're chasing silver and gold, you've lost sight of the fact that more precious than that is the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop running in that direction toward gold and silver. Turn around. Run in faith toward Christ. For we are not purchased. We are not saved. We're not ransomed with silver or gold. Notice what Peter says. But we were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter now is reaching back to the Old Testament that image of a lamb and of blood. In the Old Testament, in, say, the book of Leviticus, which we studied about a year ago, or the book of Deuteronomy, God sets up an entire system of sacrifice where certain animals would be offered um, symbolically and ritually to symbolize atonement for sins. So bulls would be offered and burnt offerings, uh, but on special days, on certain days, lambs would be offered. And there was always this requirement that what was offered to God had to be without blemish, had to be without defect. It had to be perfect, as it were. And so day after day, year after year, the faithful Israelite and the faithful uh, Jewish priests would bring these lambs, would bring these animals into the tent of, of meeting, into the tabernacle or to the temple, and, and there would be the ritual sacrifice of that animal. Its, its life would be taken. And as Leviticus told us, that life is in the blood. And that blood would be sprinkled on the altar, and that blood would be placed in certain places in order to cleanse the, the temple furniture, but also to, to symbolize the atonement that was being made for sin. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers tell us very clearly that all of those things in the Old Testament were simply patterns and symbols pointing to the one true sacrifice the real Lamb of God, who actually, not symbolically, actually takes away the sins of the world by his sacrifice. That real Lamb of God is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came into the world in our human likeness, in our human flesh, and who gave his life as a ransom for many, the Bible says. He shed his blood. Life is in the blood to atone for our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He was the perfect sacrifice without blemish, without spot, without defect. The sacrifice that accomplished what God had always planned, our ransom, our redemption from sin and death and judgment. 
This is why we call the message about Jesus the good news. <laughs> it's so exceedingly good that a loving father would give his unique son to die for us that we who have been rebellious children might come back to him and his fatherhood and his love and his forgiveness and live eternally. It's what God offers you this morning if you're not yet a Christian. Eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ who was crucified to pay the penalty for your sins, who was buried and resurrected on the third day so that you and I might have life together through faith in him. Don't reject that gift. Don't turn back to the futile ways that you've inherited from the world or for your forefathers. Turn to this powerful way that brings everyone who believes into eternal life. And Christian, I want to encourage you this morning to celebrate not only the fact that you have a father in heaven and that you have been ransomed by the blood of the Son, but to celebrate this morning that we also get the privilege of letting other people know this good news from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. That's why we exist to celebrate this in song, to call upon God in prayer, to proclaim it in preaching, to assemble in celebration of it, to pass it to our neighbors. That's our great joy. I mean, think what we have gotten, what we have received in Christ. Ain't that worth talking about? Ain't that worth telling somebody? Let's tell this old, old story until they all come. Call upon your Father who loves you unconditionally. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we give you praise that your Son's blood shed 2,000 years ago still atones for us. And the blood shall never lose its power. And we give you praise that you have sent your Son into the world to prove not only that He is your Son, but that we too could be your children. We thank you for the adoption that we have through faith in Jesus Christ and the eternal life that you have promised and that is coming, that we have obtained by faith. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to live in the fear of you. Teach us, O oh Lord, to live reverential lives, Lord, uh, lives of deep respect for you as children who ought uh, to live uh, before their father. Help us to remember that you are our Father, to remember that we have been ransomed, and to remember that that ransom cost was the precious blood of your Son. For if you would ransom in this, us in this way, surely reverence should be given to you. Give us grace to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name.